If you would, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8 before we go to Ephesians chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 8. I want to briefly remind you of a great celebration that occurred in the Bible for an event that you might not think is worth celebrating. But I hope that you will. In verse 12 of Nehemiah chapter 8, it says, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. Because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. How did they understand the words that were declared unto them? Because the first eight verses tell us that they stood from morning until midday, till noon, in the street that is before the water gate, and they put Ezra up on a pulpit, and he opened the Word of God in the sight of all the people, including the children that had understanding. And we read in verse 8, So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and cause them to understand the reading. That is why they celebrated. If you don't celebrate the preaching of God's Word when His words are made plain to your understanding, then you don't have a relationship to the people in the Bible by spirit. You have something wrong with you. You have a spiritual problem. Because when God's people get to assemble together, and they came together with one heart and one mind, In this situation, I can't preach to you Nehemiah 8. I've done that before. Well, they came together with unity, and the Word of God was open and explained to them so that they could understand it. They made great mirth. They celebrated, and we ought to celebrate as well, when the Word of God is explained to us. Let's turn now to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, this is part of the Word of God. And so it's my task today to lead you through these 32 verses, to read them distinctly, to give the sense and to cause you to understand them for the benefit of doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. Lord, help us. Father in heaven, it is not by might, nor by power, nor by intellect, nor by eloquence, nor by outlines, nor by hours of study, but by thy Spirit, saith the Lord. For us to understand these things, to be taught and instructed by them, to be corrected where necessary, to be reproved where needed, and to be instructed in righteousness. Heavenly Father, let not these words be the words of men to human ears. Let these words be the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, even His wholesome words, given to His Apostle, and that they might land upon ears that are made ready by the Spirit of God, 
and hearts ready to receive them with a willing mind. And that, Heavenly Father, each of us might be convicted that there lies in Ephesians 4 enough warnings, reminders, and exhortations to keep us busy for this week, yea, even for the rest of our lives, if we would be faithful to Thy Word. Help us to this end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Epistle of Ephesians, that large metropolis in Asia of the Roman Empire, where they worshipped the great goddess Diana and the image that they think fell from Jupiter, where they practiced witchcraft and were a wicked city, there was a large congregation converted. The Apostle Paul was their founder and their pastor in preaching to them the gospel. Now, he wrote this epistle after he had been away from them for some time. It's an easy epistle to understand. The first division we want to see, and I've pointed out to you before, is between chapters 3 and 4. When you get to the end of chapter 3, you'll notice an amen. I mean, when you read verse 21, you would think that that was the end of the epistle. Listen to the words. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus Throughout all ages, world without end, amen. amen. Doesn't that sound like the end of something to you? Yep. Sounds like a glorious benediction. But that's because he's ended the three chapters of explaining what God has done for you and what God has done for me. Right. He then takes up what we ought to do for the Lord because of that. Amen. So when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, you would expect a therefore. Because he's concluded his first argument, you would expect that he is now going to draw an application of it, and so we do have a therefore. In chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore, because of what I've written in chapters 1, 2, and 3, I now need to teach you this. Because I've explained so well that God elected you before the foundation of the world, made you accepted in the Beloved, predestinated you to an eternal inheritance, regenerated you from death and trespasses and sins, created you unto good works, united you in one body with the Jews, is using you as an object lesson to the angels in heaven, and is willing to fill you until you are filled with all the fullness of God. Since God is willing to do all of that and has done most of that already for you, I now need to teach you what you can do for Him. So here we go into Ephesians chapter 4. Now the call of this chapter includes the goals of a church, the purpose of a church, why we have churches. It explains to us the purpose of why there are pastors and teachers. It explains to us that the most important thing we can have is unity among ourselves. If there's one theme that keeps coming up from the first couple verses to the last couple verses... It's being united together as a church without division or strife, without bitterness or malice, tender-hearted, kind, forgiving one another, and forbearing one another. Do you know why that's so important? Because we are sinners by nature. We are selfish, proud, resentful, hateful, and hating one another. By nature, you are a selfish person. 
The Lord never taught you to learn how to love yourself. He taught you that if you could ever learn His religion, you would learn to love others as much as you already love yourself. Now, James Dobson and the rest of the heretics today that are preaching in pulpits in this country teach that you need to learn to love yourself in order to have a functional life. That is contrary to the Word of God. You already love yourself so much that God knew that if you would ever extend that love toward others, you would be one loving saint. And that's what we are to learn. And so Ephesians chapter 4, after Paul describes everything God has done for these saints, he's now concerned about the prosperity of that church. And his great concern is that they would love one another in humility and serve one another. You had read today Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself to become a servant. If he could humble himself to become a servant, can you humble yourself to serve everyone else in here? Is there anyone you think too low for your service? Is it their age? Are they too old? Are they too young? Is it because they're a redneck? Don't get offended. What is it that would cause you to say, I can't stoop that low? The Lord Jesus Christ did not think it robbery to be equal with God because He was God. And He humbled Himself to become a man, and and a lowly man at that, and then suffer the death of the cross, a common criminal... Under the Roman Empire for you and for me. Can, can we have that kind of a mindset and love one another? Listen, why, why can't you get down to others? We're all equals. There's no difference in here. Jesus Christ humbled himself to the ground for us. One more thing before I get going. Please think about this, especially our visitors. Now, I'm not trying to focus attention on you. Just, just think about this, and I want all of you to remember it. As you go through the epistles... And here we have this great church in Asia Minor, and the Apostle Paul has laid out the doctrine of how they were saved and how they're in one body. I mean, chapter 2 and 3 is all about one body, one church, temple of the Holy Ghost, the household of God, the family of God. It's all there. We have the church. So you would expect as we come into chapter 4, we are about to get the mission statement of a church. The words mission statement don't have nothing to do with missionaries. The word mission statement is a newfangled idea of companies today to have a one-sentence statement about the reason for their existence. So as we come into chapter 4, we're about to get the mission statement of the church of Jesus Christ. And you read chapter 4, and it sounds so strange. You you go to chapter 5, and it sounds so strange. You go to 6, and it's strange. Then you try the other epistles, and it's strange. Because the mission statement of the churches of Jesus Christ, there is not one sentence anywhere about fulfilling the Great Commission. There is not one sentence anywhere about spreading the Gospel. Can you believe it? I grew up in churches. I saw churches... I went to the world's most unusual university where I was taught that was the purpose for the church. 
If you go online and look at almost any church in this city, especially Baptist churches, they will say that their purpose for existence is to fulfill the Great Commission, but there isn't one word in all the epistles of Paul to churches that ever say that. Not one verse. Not even the hint of it. Do you know what we're going to get in the rest of this book? Chapter 4. Do you know what we're going to get? Love one another and serve one another and live a holy life. Chapter 5. Live a holy life and love your spouse. Chapter 6. Teach your children, obey your parents, serve your boss, and be kind to your employees, and fight the spiritual warfare against the devil to live a holy life. Amen. And he ends the epistle. We are not against preaching the gospel anywhere we have an opportunity to preach it. We are not against paying heavy money every month to have our website throughout the world. We are not against writing a commentary every day from the book of Proverbs in order to lead men to the truth where we find them in the earth. But I want you to know the purpose for the church is not what the world is trying to make it. If the purpose for the church is the Great Commission, then we can all just come in, sing a bunch of happy songs, and we don't have much duty laid on us. But when we go to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, there's a lot of things that we are to be doing to please the Lord that elected us, justified us, regenerated us, and has predestinated us to an eternal inheritance. It's amazing. I dare anyone. One verse. One verse from Romans on. One verse about a church being responsible for the Great Commission. You couldn't fulfill the Great Commission. There's not a person alive on this planet that can fulfill the Great Commission because Jesus Christ said that those that He gave the Great Commission to were going to go forth with all signs and wonders. And they went forth with signs and wonders. Somebody will say to me, well, if, if the church isn't trying to fulfill the Great Commission, then how's anyone else going to ever hear the Gospel? We follow the Bible. By our lives, by our lives, they should see the Gospel lived out. But the Bible tells ministers to do the work of an evangelist. Ministers cannot be restrained and limited to their own congregation. They are also supposed to be reaching out themselves. Now see, that's a pastoral epistle. Now, when you come to a pastoral epistle, there's some duties there for the man of God to be doing the work of an evangelist. But when we look at the church, do you know what? If we were ever able to be able to do chapters 4, 5, and 6, we would have one fantastic church. And if you don't think that's a full-time job, then you haven't listened closely enough to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It deals with the relationships of life at home, at work, With the government, it deals with your tongue, your thoughts, your actions. It deals with the church of God. I trust the Bible more than I trust any university, any doctor of theology or group of them, any ministerial association, any denominational headquarters. I trust God's Word. I believe every word that we've covered so far in the first three chapters And I believe the words that we're about to read now. And so let's humble ourselves before them and realize that they are God's words to us. 
And though you may be familiar with them, can you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and say that you perfectly fulfilled them? You'll get that opportunity. Let's go. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So therefore, what's the question we ask whenever we find a therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? Because therefore is always drawing a conclusion. Because of chapters 1 through 3, I now need to beg you to do this. I beseech you, bless his sanctified soul. The Apostle Paul is in prison. And he appeals to his situation in prison. And he begs this church to consider what he's about to tell them. This is Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom on how to write a letter. He appeals to the fact that he's in jail, and then he begs them. The word beseech is to beg and entreat, to ask. He could command. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll do that soon enough. I beseech you that ye walk worthy. Brethren, are you walking worthy? You know what the word walk means. Today they say he can talk the talk. But he can't walk the walk. You know exactly what the word walk means. It means are you living the way you should be? Are you living worthy of what God has done for you? Your vocation. The word vocation is your appointment or the role God has given you in life. Now you have professional vocations. Some of you are shop owners. Some of you are employees of businesses. You have a professional vocation. You have a marital vocation. Either you're a husband or you're a wife. But the vocation under consideration here is what was given to us in the first three chapters. You are a son of God. You were predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. According to the good pleasure of His will. That is your vocation. A son of God. You have been appointed and called to be a son of God. Are you walking worthy of that vocation, that position in life? Do you look like a son of God? Do you talk like a son of God? Do you think like a son of God? On the job, do you work hard like a son of God? When someone wrongs you, do you forgive them and blow it off like a son of God? Are you focused on heaven rather than this earth like a son of God? A son of God doesn't care about what's going on down here. He cares about what's going on up there. Are you walking worthy of your vocation? God's made you His son. Are you making your father happy? Are you walking worthy of such great blessings? To be adopted by the God of heaven is an unspeakable blessing. Are you walking worthy of that blessing? That's what the first verse is saying. Well, how do we do that? I I would hope that in every regenerated heart, you're saying to yourself, I want to be told right now what I need to do to walk worthy of my calling and vocation as a son of God. Okay? I've got the answer for you. Verse 2. 
with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. You really want to know how to walk worthy? Get down. Get down and shut up and serve one another in love. Now somebody's going to find fault with me for saying shut up. But I don't care. You know what it means. And it saves me a whole lot of words. With all lowliness. That's why I said get down. With all lowliness. Notice. Notice the simple commands of the gospel. He isn't asking you to go to South America. He isn't asking you to float some pontoon boat up the Amazon in hope that you can help the kingdom of God. He's saying, get down. Do you know what's a whole lot harder? It's pretty easy to take a high and lofty spirit and go have a vacation in the Amazon for four years. You say you're not being very nice to missionaries. Well, all I'm doing is trying to turn your attention to what the Bible says is what He wants us to do. And that's to get down all loneliness. The Lord in, in, in this particular verse just pounded me with all. All lowliness. Do you know what we want to do? I'll only get down so far. Then I'll stop because if I get down any farther, then I'm going to be a doormat and people are going to walk on me. Have you ever heard that one? If I get down too far, I'll be a doormat. I want to tell you something. I represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the King of Kings could get down to where he was a doormat, and they wiped their feet on him, and they punched him in the face, and they spat on him and pulled his hair out, and gave him vinegar to drink when he was thirsty, then you should be able to get down for your brothers and sisters. With all lowliness and meekness, that is humility, and a willingness to put up with abuse and hurt from other people. Who was the meekest man in the face of the earth, second to the Lord Jesus Christ? Moses. Did Moses want to lead those people out of Egypt? Have you been reading that in recent chapters? The man was right stubborn, wasn't he? He made up every excuse he could think of to avoid leading the people of God because he didn't want a leadership role. What a man. Joshua once came to Moses. Joshua once came to Moses and said, Moses, there's two men that are prophesying out in the camp. Tell me, give me the authority to go tell him to shut up. Joshua was envious for Moses' position. And we all love subordinates like that, don't we? What did Moses say? Oh, would to God the whole nation was prophesying. Now that's a meek man. He wanted no special role for himself. He wanted to exalt the God of heaven and the blessings of God's spirit upon men. With all lowliness and meekness. Are you willing to put up with people saying something or doing something that hurts your little feelings? You have to, to please the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk worthy of being a son of God. With long suffering. What does long suffering mean? It means to suffer for a long time. That's not a hard word, is it? Are you willing to suffer for a long time with somebody doing it over and over again to you? Well, after they've done it two or three times... I need to let them know that that's wrong. Why? That's not very lowly. That sounds awfully haughty. 
That's not very meek. That sounds pretty proud. You think you're too important to be offended by someone else. Long-suffering, putting up with someone hurting your feelings and doing it for a long time. Forbearing one another in love. What does that mean? Putting up with someone hurting you. You say these words sound redundant. They are a little bit. Do you know why they're redundant? Because the repetition is necessary for you to get the message. Every one of us, what happens when someone says something against you? Or against something you've done? Or acts like you're not very important? What wells up inside of you and how long does it take? How long does yours take? Mine can't be measured in seconds because it's faster than that. You know, my heart rate changes immediately and my face usually changes too, which I really hate because then you know what I'm like inside. Yeah, I know. I know I'm like you because you're like me too. It shows up. Right. Do you know how fast it shows up? I'm glad I didn't show up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm glad I didn't show up in the Lord Jesus Christ that when he was getting battered the worst at midnight in the wee hours of the morning in Herod's judgment hall as Roman soldiers made fun of him and blindfolded him and punched him in the face and said, if you're the son of God, then tell me who just hit you in the face. Oh, brother. Now that sounds offensive. Would you be offended if someone did that to you at lunch today? It's a snack. Would you be offended? I would have called 12 legions of angels and I would have said, Sick them! But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't. You know what the Bible says about Him? He went as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't threaten. He didn't revile. He just went. Now if the Lord Jesus Christ can do that, Can you get down and serve others and put up with them offending you? We're all going to offend each other. I'm just an offensive person. I'm a Doberman in a human body. And I try to love you all. But we're all going to offend each other. That's And so we have this verse. Do you want to look like a son of God? Do you want to walk like a son of God? Then learn to put up with each other and forget all the trespasses and offenses and things that are said, and the moods, the tones, and they forgot to invite me, and they didn't do this, and they said that. Forget it all. Get down and serve one another with a sacrificial spirit like the Lord Jesus Christ served you. Amen. That's verse 2. And it's so powerful. It's so plain. And this is the mission statement of a church. That we have to be lowly, meek, long-suffering, and forbearing one another in love. Love is not easily provoked. Love thinketh no evil. Love beareth all things. Love endureth all things. Love suffereth long. If you really love someone, the real measure of love is not how excited you can get on a date. It's how forgiving you can be when you're stood up for a date. I'll tell you the second one's going to serve you a whole lot better when you get married than the first one. Because guess what? Every married couple knows that they stand each other up on a regular basis. And so you need that second aspect of love, and that's the only one that really counts. Did you understand what I just said? That's what you want to look for. How gracious and merciful is some young man. 
and forgiving, not how excited he can get on a date. It'll save you in the long run because you're going to disappoint him. And if he's forgiving and merciful, then you're all set. Not that you have any particular problem that I don't have or that anyone else doesn't have. Everyone else in here is just glad that it's you that I'm looking at and picking on instead of them. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has already united us together. We had a young man read 1 Corinthians 12 to us that said, By one Spirit we're all baptized into one body. We're members one of another. The Holy Spirit of God has united us together into one body. Over and over and over we have the word body as a picture of the church. This is a body. You have a body. It has very different members. I've been over this so many times. It has fingers. It has eyes. It has ears, a nose, a mouth, a tongue, feet, ankles, knees, elbows, shoulders, hands. All of these different members are in one body. And there's one spirit in me that tells... My body does not fight against itself. If I started punching, you know, if I started punching myself right now, or trip, or one foot wanting to go that way and one foot going that way, that would be an attempt to splits. And I can't do them. So it would be ugly and painful. But that's because my body is functioning together. My legs want to go in one direction. They're working in a coordinated pair to get me to where I want to go. And, and over and over and over, the Bible uses the example of a body for this group of people. Right. There's ears here. There's eyes. There's even big toes. But I want to say something about the big toe. You can pay an NFL wide receiver $8 million a year to play 16 games. That's $500,000 a game. And what can sideline him that's called T&T? Turf toe. Thank you. Turf toe can sideline an $8 million wide receiver because he is unable to run down the field and turn sharp enough to catch a pass on artificial turf. And they get their turf toes from artificial... You sprain your big toe. Because artificial turf holds an athletic shoe so well that when they turn sharply with overdeveloped muscles from a good steroid program, it sprains their big toes. And it's called turf toe. Now the reason I just went through all of that is not to tell you about athletics because you know me better than that. I went through all of that because if there's anyone here that thinks of themselves as a big toe, we have something for you. The body is ruined when even toes don't perform. Do you understand? That's that's what I said all that for. I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. And because I don't see Paul talking about it too, I see him talking about a little bit. They which run the race won't run all. He that fighteth had better not beat the air. You know, it does say a little bit. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. What's the unity of the Spirit? The whole body functioning together with the Spirit of God leading us all. Do you know what the Spirit of God leads like? Love, joy, 
peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there's no law. You can do those things as much as you want. My body has one spirit. It's the spirit of Jonathan Crosby that directs every one of its members. I can do a few things at once. So can you. Because you have one spirit manipulating all the members of your body. And that's what we want to keep. And notice it takes effort to keep it. I don't have to work about it. It's instinctive. My body doesn't move unless my spirit tells it to move. So this, this body's easy. But in the church, it's, a, it's, it's hard. It's hard. An endeavor is something that you've got to put forth effort for. It's work. It's a job. Endeavoring to keep. To keep. The Lord's given it to us when He put us in this church. He gave us the strength to do it. He gave us the grace to do it. He gave us the knowledge to do it. We're baptized together into one body. We're all partaking of one Spirit. That's all 1 Corinthians 12.13. But we're to keep it because we can lose that unity of the Spirit by letting anything come up between any two of us or any group of us. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What should tie us all together? Peace. We all love each other. No clicks allowed in this church. No strife allowed in this church. Peace is the bond that should bind us together. There's a sentence for you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Now look at how the apostle appeals to that unity with this argument in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One, one, one. What do verses 4, 5, and 6 mean? Could I preach for, for the month of March on one baptism? I could. And it's not because I'm smart. Because the Bible tells us a lot about baptism, and there's a whole lot of heresies out there about baptism. I wouldn't mind preaching for a month on baptism. I love the doctrine of baptism. I'm a Baptist by conviction from the Word of God, not by name on the front sign. The First Baptist Church of Greenville isn't Baptist. They'll take a Presbyterian sprinkling. I don't care about the name on the sign. What I care about is what we're convicted to defend. I could talk a long time about baptism, but that is, Paul isn't talking about baptism here. You know context well enough, don't you? You know he's not talking about baptism, but there is only one. And the Mormon baptism is not baptism. And a Catholic baptism is not baptism. And a Lutheran baptism is not baptism. There is one baptism. And it is the burial and resurrection in water of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not sprinkling. It's not pouring. And it's not the baptism for the dead of the church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. But that isn't the point. You know what the point is of verses 4, 5, and 6? One. 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 The church is entirely united around a whole set of ones. And if the church is united around a whole set of ones, we ought to be one. We ought to be united in all that we do, think, say, and feel toward each other. We ought to be held together by the bond of peace. That's what verses 4, 5, and 6 are saying. There is one God. How can we be split when there's one God? When there's one Lord? We only have one faith. 
Do you know what the world wants us to believe today? There's a whole lot of faiths, and they're just different paths to the same God. They're just, diff- they're just different roads to the same heaven. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Bible says that we ought to earnestly contend for the faith. Once delivered faith. So there's one faith. Since there's one, we all ought to be united into one ourselves. Into that one body that that long sentence begins with in verse 4. God is one God. He's above all. He's through all. And He's in you all. Shouldn't that make us one? And He is not only God. He is God our Father. Our Father in Heaven is one. And He has adopted a family. And so much more than we ever think it, He wants our family to get along with each other. Do you know what I cannot stand? A divided or unhappy family. Does every parent in here agree with me? A happy and united family is a wonderful blessing. And God our Father deserves it. And He expects it. Let's give it to Him. Let's have the most united... Listen, I want the greatest... I want a megachurch. I want a megachurch right here on Standing Springs Road, and I don't mean mega in size. I mean mega in glory and mega in pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. Forget their size. That has nothing to do with it. Do you know what the Bible told me about megachurches? And it was written in 60 A.D. by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy chapter verses 3 through 5 where it says, Ministers are going to come along who believe that gain is godliness. (laughs) They measure themselves by their numbers. But we know what real success is, don't we? Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what the next verse tells us. I want a mega church. Mega glorious. Mega pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mega peace. Mega loving. Mega forgiving. Mega forbearing. Mega, mega. Yes, we'll have a mega church. Brethren, let's build it. But it's going to take every, every joint and every part that's, that are in those pews right now. Verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. While we are all united into one body, which means there's no distinctions at all. We're one in Jesus Christ. We want to be, we want to keep that peace. Yet there are a few distinctions based on the gifts of Jesus Christ to each of you and to me. That's what verse 7 is saying. But, so we have something that's said that's being said that's opposite or a little different than what we just had in verses 4 through 6. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Jesus Christ dispenses gifts. And those gifts are to be used. Now we had a brother read a list of gifts. Did you hear them? Did you see it in your Bible? Was serving a gift? Was ministering a gift? Was giving a gift? Was ruling a gift? Was showing mercy a gift? Everybody wants to know what their gift is. You know, can I run the audio-video department? (laughs) Don't get excited. (laughs) I don't have a volunteer yet. But, you know, if you go go into a church today, if you go to Brookwood right down the street, you're going to get handed a card that you're supposed to fill out, and they're going to ask you, what ministry do you want? They've never met you in their lives. 
They want to give a ministry to everyone so that everyone feels important because that's one way you build a megachurch. I want to clean the Harleys of the Harley group while they're in church. Okay. You're a minister of Jesus Christ. Get out there and polish the Harley. You think I'm kidding. I went to Brookwood. I got their card. I read it. Now I'm exaggerating a little bit about the Harley. I'm not exaggerating about the Harley Club. I'm exaggerating about polishing it while the Harley Club's in church. They want to give everyone a ministry. But we just had a list of gifts given to us. Are you a forgiving soul? Then do it with cheerfulness. Do you love to show mercy? Do it with cheerfulness. We read it in Romans chapter 12. We have different gifts according to the gift of Jesus Christ. Use anything that you've been given for the benefit of this church. Verse 8. Wherefore, let's talk about some of these gifts. Verse 8 down through verse 16 is going to deal first with the ministry, then with every part and every joint of the body. Verse 8. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. This is from Psalm 68. God said in Psalm 68 that Jesus Christ would rise from the dead and would ascend up on high and be given gifts for men. Who gave him the gifts? God his Father did. This verse said that he gave gifts. To whom did he give them? The men we're about to read about. It's a wonderful transition that took, in he- took place in heaven. I emphasize this because it's, it's, it's my, one of my favorite themes in the whole Bible, and you've known it for several years now. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended up out of this earth's atmosphere, he came into heaven and he was crowned Lord of all. Amen. It was the most stupendous event the universe had ever seen to have Jesus Christ of Nazareth come into heaven in bodily form and be honored by God Almighty. That's Revelation 5 when the angels sang and when the saints that are already there sang. And he sat down at the right hand of God and God divided the spoils of the victory of his war. And what was his war? He defeated the devil, sin, and death. What do you think of that threesome? He defeated the devil, sin, and death And God gave him spoils. It was the Holy Ghost. He poured that out on the day of Pentecost. It was the gifts of the ministry. And he poured that out from the day of Pentecost upon men. Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. When you read Revelation 5, you get into the Spirit and think about being John and witnessing that event. i got to chase it for just a second. You've heard it so many times, but I'm going to keep pounding you with it because that Lord Jesus Christ deserves our obedience. Pound, that was a gentle pounding. That was a loving pounding. I want to keep pressing you with the Word of God. You say, well, can you justify the word pounding from the Bible? I think I can. Jeremiah 23, verses 28 and 29 say that my word is like a hammer. Right. Is that close enough? Yep, work. I want to pound you with this thought. of the Lord Jesus Christ being there on His throne. That's what you ought to remember. 
how great and glorious he is. And when he ascended and sat down there at the right hand of God, he began dispensing gifts to the church. And we want to remember him in that role, in that position, in that place, doing those things. The world, and I've said this many times, wants us to keep him in a manger or keep him on a crucifix. We want him on his throne. And whenever he's off his throne, we want him on his white horse. Because that's how the Bible depicts Jesus Christ to us. Verse 9 is in parentheses. Sometimes the Holy Spirit tells us things that aren't directly germane to the point, but they're sort of necessary, and so they're in parentheses. Now in verse 8 he said, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Those are the gifts of the ministry. And verse 11 is going to tell us exactly what he gave. And he gave some apostles. So verse 8 and verse 11 are very definitely closely connected. But in between them, he just wants to elaborate a little bit more about what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Before I leave 8, 8 says, when he ascended up on high. You know exactly what that is. Jesus Christ rose up out of this earth's atmosphere and sat down at the right hand of Almighty God. He led captivity captive. What was our captivity before Jesus Christ? Sin and death. That held us all captive. Jesus Christ just destroyed it so thoroughly. In this particular place, the Spirit would have us read, He led captivity captive. He took what was capturing us all. We had to die because of sin. And He just captured it. 2 Timothy 1.10 would say, He abolished death. And he gave gifts to men. And then those gifts are described in verse 11. But before we go to 11, look at 9 and 10. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. See, Paul thinks the way I want to think and the way I want you to think. When Paul starts writing about the Lord Jesus Christ, look at the kind of terminology he keeps using. Jesus Christ ascended up far above all heavens. I like all four words. I will not accept a translation that's got three of them. I will not accept a translation with two of them. I want all four words. Far, above, all, heavens. That's high. That's high. And that's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ is high. Love Him this morning. Serve Him this morning. Humble yourself before Him this morning. This is His church. And He wants all of us loving each other. He's high. And you're going to stand before Him and give an account of whether you loved your brothers and sisters or not. Our brother read, read Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He took upon himself the form and reputation of a servant. This is the same point right here. Paul just squeezes it in because he wants you to have another example that Jesus Christ was a servant. Before he ascended and could give away gifts, before Jesus Christ went to the right hand of God, he descended. 
He came into this world and he got down. He was lowly. He was meek. He did forbear. He was long-suffering. Thank the blessed God of heaven he still is. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? You can't ascend unless you're down. And for Jesus Christ to get down, that must mean that must mean he descended first before he ascended. You can follow the reasoning here. Because Paul has used the word ascended in verse 8, he's, he's, he's chasing a rabbit on the word ascended. And it's not about yesterday's football game. That's not his rabbit. His rabbit is that the word ascended is in verse 8. And in order for Jesus Christ to ascend, he must have first descended. And that's what we ought to be willing to do. And that's to get down for each other. He came down first into the lower parts of the earth. What part do you want to think about? When men in, when men in Israel heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, they said, No way! No good thing can come out of Nazareth! Right. He was in the lower parts of the earth. How big was Bethlehem? The littlest among all the towns of Judea. How, how well off were his parents? What did Mary have to bring? What did Joseph have to bring for Mary for her purification sacrifice? Two turtle doves. The sacrifice of a poor woman. He came into lower parts of the earth. When we are born, we are born just like a wild ass's colt. The Lord Jesus Christ came out the same way from the same place with the same gore that every one of us came into this world. I mean, no, I mean, no disrespect to any woman here at all. Childbirth is a wonderful thing in, in some respects. But the Bible wants you to know that childbirth is just the same way that wild asses colts get here. The Lord Jesus Christ came down, 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 down for us. And so we should be willing to do the same thing. And look at what God, look what God hints at here. Now he that descended is also him that ascended up far above all heavens. Because in the passage that we didn't read in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Therefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. And why did God give that exalted name to Jesus Christ? Because he was willing to get down. Are you willing to get down for the Lord Jesus Christ and make this a mega church that's mega glorious to the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ? He will exalt you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and get down, and he will lift you up and make you great. Verse 11, and he gave some apostles, the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrected resurrection. They went into all the world. They had all the gifts. They had all the signs and powers to do the works of an apostle. And some prophets. These were men that God enabled to know the will of God before there was a New Testament. And some evangelists. These are men like Philip that went and preached to those that had never heard before. You know, this evangelist is not, this, this office of evangelist isn't around anymore. There's no more apostles in spite of what the man that runs the World Redemption Center on Haywood Road and his wife believe about both of themselves. The apostle and the apostleess. He's not an apostle because he's never seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he doesn't have any of the power of an apostle. Listen, when he can mail handkerchiefs and accomplish something other than getting a whole lot of $50 checks in the mail... When he can mail out handkerchiefs and get a whole lot more than lots of envelopes with checks, then we'll start questioning whether he's an apostle. But he can't do anything. 
His name's Ron Carpenter. For those of you that are offended with name calling. Anybody know his wife's name? What's Ronnie's wife's name? What's the apostolus? Hope. Is that right? Okay, yes. We got some people in here that are up on the World Redemption Center. Listen, the apostles went away with the Lord Jesus Christ. You had to have been an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ and have all the gifts that He gave because the apostles had it all. They were called the signs of an apostle. The prophets were the ones that revealed the will of God. The evangelists were those that preached to those that had not heard. Now today, this is where men leave the Bible. What's an evangelist today? It's a man who does not want the care of a church. So he puts an ad in religious publications and says, I'm available for evangelistic work. What does that mean? It means that he travels from church to church and preaches five canned sermons. He comes into a church where there's a bunch of willing people sitting there wanting to hear a new voice. And so he gets in the pulpit and he pulls out his five canned sermons and hopefully he's practiced them a few times by then. And they sound pretty good. Because see, when you've got to preach week in, week out, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Sunday first service, Sunday second service, Wednesday night, you know it's pretty hard to keep people's interest. But listen, anybody can polish up five sermons and get a church dancing. Because it's new. That's what they call an evangelist. They'll call an evangelist a man that goes around and fleeces other men's flocks. I've got verses on that one. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Get down there about verses 12 through 15. Paul said, we never take advantage of a congregation made ready for our hand. We never do that like other men do it. Now, I'm not all that upset. I I know I look at it and I sound like it. Oh, boy, if you're listening to this tape, you'd think that I must be mad. But I'm not mad. I'm just wondering, why can't men read the Bible? The evangelist in the Bible, there's only one mentioned by name, and his name is Philip. Philip started off as a deacon, then he got promoted. He got promoted to be an evangelist, and he went down to Samaria and preached the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, he wasn't an apostle. Do you know how we know? Because after he preached and he baptized them all, it was still kind of a dead church. He had to send word back and get the apostles to come down and lay their hands on them so they could get the Holy Ghost. Because the apostles had more power than an evangelist had. And we read about Philip later in Acts chapter 21 that he had a few daughters that were prophetesses. But he's the evangelist. He went and preached to the people of Samaria in Acts chapter 8 before the Gentiles had been preached to. Then we have pastors and teachers. And that gift of pastors and teachers is not two. That's not pastors and Sunday school teachers. That's pastors and teachers. One gift. It's the bishop of a church. You say, where does the word bishop come from? Well, that's Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. There's only two offices in a New Testament church, bishop and deacon. That comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3 where there's the office of a bishop and the qualifications given for it and the office of a deacon and the qualifications given for it. Notice, how can I prove that? He gave some apostles. Not everyone's an apostle and not Ron and Hope Carpenter. But some are apostles, and they have all gone away. Some are prophets, they've gone away. Some are evangelists, they've gone away. And some are pastors and teachers. One gift. Don't be confused by that. Why? Why did God give these gifts? For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. 
Notice that the emphasis here is not for the evangelization of the world. For the perfecting of the saints. The job is to find the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ because He's the only one that can make saints, but then the ministry is to help perfect them. Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, We warn every man and teaching every man in Christ Jesus that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the goal of the ministry. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? Well, I'm told in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Give yourself wholly to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. That's the work of the ministry. A whole lot of reading, a whole lot of exhortation, a whole lot of teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. Doctrine is just a fancy old word for instruction and teaching. We don't use it anymore. I wasn't making fun of that word. It's in our Bibles, but you don't use it in sentences very often. It means instruction and teaching. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. A church is given a pastor in order to oversee it and help build it up. When we edify something, we build it up. An edifice is a building. When you're edifying something, you're building it up. Verse 13. What's the goal? What, what is a ministerial goal? Till we stay at that work. We stay at that ministry. Till we all come, that is the whole church, in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal of every minister should be to get every single church member looking like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. It's just worded gloriously in this verse. Till we all come. Not just some of the members. The goal is to get them all growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the unity of the faith. There's one faith. So we all ought to be believing the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Perfect, mature, complete, developed. A a man that is fit and looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says it so well, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Take Jesus Christ, make sure you've got all of them so that it's the fullness of them. That's his stature. And we're not talking about a body. We're talking about his godly character. Take that, measure it, and that's what we want to be like. And we should measure ourselves every day by that standard. Was he meek? Was he long-suffering? Was he loving? Was he patient? Did he know the truth? Did he speak the truth? Did he defend the truth? Did the zeal of God's house eat him up? You take any aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ, measure yourself by that standard, and that's what ministers should measure, measure their churches by. That's in verse 13. That's our goal, brethren. That is a mega church. When a church has all of its members fulfilling verse 13, that is a mega glorious church. Verse 14. Another goal. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There are a lot of heretical teachers and false prophets in the world teaching all sort of doctrine. And children can be easily convinced. Children bounce back and forth. One day they like one particular thing, the next day they like another. 
You ask a child one day what his favorite color is, it's going to be different than the next day. Often. Children get tossed to and fro. We don't want to be tossed to and fro. We want to be solid on the rock of God's Word and not move away from the hope of the Gospel. We do not want to move. So if we ever change on any point of doctrine, we change slowly. And I change stubbornly. But we will change, and we have changed, haven't we? Whatever the Lord shows us, we are going to follow. But we are not going to be impulsive about it, because we must hold fast and not be like children. Adults don't move back and forth and all around. Adults hold fast. They've got a long-term perspective, and they're going to stay on course. And not just bounce all over with whims and fads. And we've got a world that's bouncing around with whims and fads. And we can't go with them. Carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's tossed to and fro like a ship at sea in the wind that just bounces it around, up and down, back and forth. Because there are men out there that want to take us captive. There are new doctrines and philosophies coming up all the time. And we must stand against them and oppose them. Verse 15, instead... We want to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Can we have a church where all the members can speak, can speak the truth, and can speak the truth in love? That's a great goal for us. That we may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of this body, and we want every single part of it growing up to please that head who is directing us by His Spirit. I have a head, and it directs a spirit that animates my body. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head by this metaphor. He is the head of this body, and His Spirit is directing and animating all the parts and joints of this body. If we're walking in the Spirit if we're keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we come to verse 16. Now it had ministerial gifts in verse 11. Now we have every joint and every part. Ephesians 4.16, From whom, that is from Jesus Christ, who is the last person mentioned in verse 15, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted By that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, brethren, I know that we live in the TV generation when that sentence is a little too long for your minds. But that is one... Verse 16 wasn't a sentence either. It was just a part of a sentence. But verse 16 is a glorious statement. From whom? Jesus Christ directing us, the whole body fitly joined together. How do we get fitly joined together and compacted? By that which every joint supplies. If you were to ever see an athlete up close, they have a most compact body. Their musculature and joints are very tight. There is nothing loose or flabby about them. They are compacted together. Therefore, they can run, jump, fight, swim, or do all sorts of other athletic endeavors because their whole body is tightly compacted together. 
Every joint is trained. If they are told by a personal trainer, your knees are your weakest spot, guess what they work extra hard on? Their knees. They will be on that leg extension machine until they build up their knees. They will do everything they can so that there is no weak joint because you are only as good as your weakest joint. That's why even a big toe can keep a wide receiver out of an NFL game. It's what every joint supplies, compacts a church together, and makes it fit for the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Effectual working is working in a way that accomplishes something. And every one of you parts should be working to accomplish something in our church to make it better. Brethren, this is the New Testament of Jesus Christ. This is what is taught over and over. What are you doing as a part of this body to make this body better? What are you doing? Coming to church? Coming to an assembly? Sitting in a pew? That isn't doing anything. It's the effectual working of every part. That is working effectively to accomplish a desired end. That's what we all need to be doing to build this body to be the mega glorious church that it can be and should be for the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body, you can increase the body, not in numbers, but in spiritual quality, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself. A church builds itself up from the inside out by every joint and every part contributing in love to the edifying of itself in love. I want a mega church. The reason I want a mega church is very simple. It's for the honor of the king that I represent. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with us. And me is part of us. We are all one together as one body in Christ Jesus. I just happen to be a servant for you. I want a megachurch for the glory of Jesus Christ. And how do we get there? Jesus Christ needs every single one of you contributing the effectual working of your part and your joint to make this church better. What if Bruce Taylor, Bernie Sharon, Michael Lutman, Bob Reed, and Paul Crosby were to pull aside Michael Jones and say, Michael, that reward, that award that you have over here on the table, that you had the best attitude in your basketball league, is wonderful. I hope that you'll continue to keep that attitude and grow up to be a mighty man of God. What if those five men did that for Michael Jones? Would Michael Jones have a good day in the house of the Lord? Would that encourage him? Would those be memories he'd never forget? I'm not picking on the five men. I just had to randomly select five of you. Let's try a few more. What if Charlie Doring and John Fisher... And Jonathan Carnell and Stephen Eastland and Orville Eastland were to go and comfort my mother. 
that though she might be forgetting a few things, there's a God in heaven that doesn't forget anything, including her. And remind her that there's a verse that says, The foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are His. That's the knowledge that counts, Mom. It doesn't matter what you're forgetting. He remembers everything. Now, what if some of you chair warmers were to go look up Grandpa? Grandpa, come up here. Come here. Listen, there's nothing in the New Testament that tells us that you can't come up and stand beside me once in a while. We call this little boy, whose name is Joshua, we call him Grandpa. For an object lesson. Because before we know it, he will be a grandfather. And we can invest in this church and its future by loving this little guy. Sometimes he's lovable. Sometimes it's a little more of an endeavor. But you know what? So were we all. But he's going to be a grandpa. That's why we call him grandpa. I wrote you yesterday and told you that our numbers are increasing a little bit. And see, everyone else wants to put it on an attendance board and get haughty about it. That is not how we work at all. Our numbers are increasing. And do you know what it means? You have more work to do. So when we, when we end right now to have a snack between our two services, I hope that you're remembering that you need to go do something. You, the effectual working of every part. Don't get out of your comfort zone. Don't go sit in the same place. Don't sit with the same person. Don't talk to the same people. Why are you doing that? That is selfish. We have so little time with each other. Let's go after one another. From the, from the young ones to the older ones. And those in between, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. For us to have a body that is well-pleasing to Him, it needs every part and every measure of every joint contributing effectively. And brethren, I want to tell you something. If you're saying that's, that sounds like making church a horrible place to go and a terrible thing to do, you are wrong. You try giving sometime. The only person that would ever say that is a person that never gives. Because a person that gives knows there is pleasure in the giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. If you go after other people and invest in them and show an interest in them and ask about their life, which is what you're supposed to do, not your own things, as we heard read to us in Philippians chapter 2, you will find a blessing. And oh, you'll be lifting up this church so that it can edify itself. A church actually builds itself up from the inside. I help as a servant, but that is all I am as a helper through this passage for all of us to build this church. We should be weeping with those that weep. We should be rejoicing with those that rejoice. We should be entertaining and seeing each other, writing each other, calling each other, talking to each other, warning each other, comforting each other on a regular basis. We're a body. I'll tell you, if anything goes wrong with my body, the rest of my body comforts it. If my feet hurt, hey, when you hurt your ankle, 
Did the rest of your body do something different? Did it quit most of its normal activities just to be easy on your ankle? It did. And so if there's someone hurting in here, we ought to take notice of that and change our own conduct for the benefit of them. I have tried to lead you through Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It is based on the fact that God has loved us and predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. We are the sons of God and to walk worthy of that calling. We are told, first of all, to love one another, to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and to build this church up so that it's fit for the glorious Savior that loved us and gave himself for us, so that it is fit as the body of the King of Kings who sits at the right hand of God. May the Lord bless by His Spirit these words to the conviction, conversion, and commitment of your souls to be better church members than ever to the glory of Jesus Christ.